0: Welcome to Dev Policy Talks coming to you from the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. In this webinar recorded in June 2020, Tim Ogden, Managing Director of the Financial Access Initiative, argues it's time to reframe the research agenda on migration and remittances and shift the perspective from remittances as windfall income to return on investment. He discusses some alternative research questions that emerge from this shift and how asking better questions is a step towards better policies. The webinar is hosted by Ryan Edwards, Deputy Director of the Development Policy Centre.
1: Good morning or good evening to everyone, wherever you are. Uh, I may as well get started with my introduction, which we have with us today, um, Tim Ogden, who is the Managing Director of the Financial Access Initiative, which is a research centre housed at NYU Wagner. It's focused on how financial services can better meet the needs and improve the lives of low-income households. Tim is also a Senior Fellow at the Aspen Institute's Economic Opportunities Program and its Financial Security Program. He was Managing Director of the U.S. Financial Diaries Project, which was a joint initiative between the NYU and CFSI, which tracked the financial lives of 235 U.S. households for a full year. He writes and speaks frequently on topics of financial inclusion and financial services innovation. He has developed and edited more than 20 books, including my favourite, which is Experimental Conversations, Perspectives on Randomised Trials in Development Economics, and he's currently working on Financial Inclusion, What Everyone Needs to Know, and Automated Conversations, Perspectives on AI and Big Data in Economics. Tim also manages the... The Five Weekly Newsletter, which you should all subscribe to if you have not already. You can find it by just Googling the FAIV5 Newsletter and it will come up as the top hit. Um, For those of you who don't know me, I'm Ryan Edwards and I am... Deputy Director of the Development Policy Center here at the ANU. Today, Tim will be presenting a paper. It's um, one of my favorite migration papers in recent years. It's similar to a Journal of Economic Perspectives, Journal of Economic Literature survey paper, which kind of reframes the research and the policy agenda in a more helpful and fruitful way. That paper is called Migration and Household Finances. How a different framing can improve thinking about migration. Thank you for joining us, and I will mute myself. Over to you, Tim.
2: Hello, everyone. Uh, as Ryan was saying, this isn't a, uh, uh, an economics paper of a, an intervention or an impact evaluation. It's more of a, a reconsideration of how we think about a particular economic issue. Um, and this the story of this paper goes way back, in that uh, Michael Clemens and I, uh, Michael Clemens of the Center for Global Development, we're talking about this question of migration and remittances about seven years ago, and we decided that we would write this paper together, um, trying to get people to pay attention to the idea that the the con- conception of remittances was all wrong. We wrote the paper and submitted it to a journal, and five years later, um, we heard back, um, and that's not actually an exaggeration. It was five years before we heard back, and the paper was finally published uh, last fall, and so. Uh, you know the, the thinking in some of this has advanced, but the, the core is still the same and comes back to this question of how should we be thinking about remittances um, as it, when it comes to household finance? And so I'm gonna go back to sharing the screen now and begin with a slide that I, I think uh, many of you may have seen in some context before. So I'm gonna guess based on uh, the audience that uh, you're at least familiar with uh, portfolios of the poor, if you haven't seen this presentation before. Portfolios of the Poor was the first of the big financial diary studies, uh, looking at households, uh, tracking their finances weekly for a year in India and Bangladesh and South Africa. And one of the the main findings um, that people talk about from Portfolios of the Poor was this idea that uh, when people are living on $2 a day, it's not just $2 every day, it's a highly volatile and an average of $2 a day. But closely connected to that was that the financial lives of these poor households um, were vastly richer, deeper than you know most of sort of our our, our priors. Um, the number of financial products that they used and the the really complex way that they used them to meet their needs, you know, sort of belied a whole lot of the idea originally behind microcredit is that uh, you know, the poor didn't have access to credit. And you know a better statement would be the poor had limited access to formal credit but there was a whole lot of um, financial services being used, informal financial services mostly. And this is just a a slide from some of the presentations of the Portfolio of the Poor. So to illustrate this one family and the number of different tools they were using to manage their finances. I tend to think of household finance in terms of a a modified Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, when it comes to managing household finance. And the very base of that pyramid is managing liquidity. So every household has this issue that there is not an exact match between money in hand, when it's in hand, and when it's needed. And particularly for poor households who experience a lot of volatility, their primary need is the ability to manage liquidity so they can spend in the moment that they need it to manage their consumption. On top of that tier is managing investment. This is the process of creating a lump sum. Uh, Here I often look to Stuart Rutherford's work and sort of the idea of Um, the difficulties of getting lump sums together in order to make investments. And that households, you know, approach this in one of two ways. One, they borrow to get a lump sum and then pay it down over time, or they save up. But the challenge when you have a a volatile income and limited tools to manage liquidity is um, creating those lump sums is very, very difficult. And households use a lot of different strategies to do it. And then on top of that uh, is the ability to manage risk. And there's some overlap here between managing investment and managing risk that I put in just the way this uh, diagram is designed because, you know, risk preferences uh, are heterogeneous between households and some households want to manage risk before they invest and some will invest before they manage risk. But regardless, there is this tier of these three goals, these three tasks that households need to accomplish to manage their finances um, and sort of get through the month, the week, the year, uh, uh, liquidity, investment, and risk. Now, when we start talking about how households use finance, though, we often very quickly switch into products. And uh, much of the research in economics started out around the idea of credit and how microcredit in particular was was being used by households or not used by households. But the quick point I want to make here um, is that each of these products uh, in finance Um, can be used to meet any one of the main household financial goals. So you can use credit to manage liquidity. You can use credit to manage investment, and you can use credit to manage risk. And one of the challenges we have in understanding how households use the products that they use is uh, often we come with these strong priors that they're using credit to manage investment. And in fact, they're not. They're using it to manage liquidity. The point of that, that pyramid that I was showing a moment ago is to show when households can't manage liquidity, they will reapply whatever tool we give them to manage liquidity until they can appropriately manage it before they'll move on to using the tool for the next thing. That shapes a lot of my understanding of how to think about impact research in a lot of financial products. We'll come back to that. But you know, as I was mentioning, you know, credit can be used to accomplish any one of those goals. Savings can equally be used to accomplish any one of those goals. And in fact... Insurance can be used to manage any one of those goals. The idea that we can map a product to a use has to go away. But for my talk today, what I really want to focus on is migration also is a tool to manage liquidity, to manage investment, and manage risk. Migration, by the fact that it is a highly profitable investment for poor households around the world, whether we're talking rural to urban migration or transnational migration, enables them to shift the pace and um, volatility of resources because it's much more likely that that migrant has a regular and predictable income. It allows them to manage investment because that the income of that migrant uh, is so much higher than the incomes that are available in a local context. And so it's much easier to either uh, borrow to make an investment or to build up savings to make an investment. And um, importantly, migration is an incredibly great tool for managing risk, because it separates the income generating activities of a household across geography. And so um, the likelihood that a house is going to be subjected to the same shocks, the same income shocks, the same uh, uh, consumption shocks, decreases dramatically in migration migration is as good as or better than any insurance product that we can conceive of. We'll come back to some of the research on that a little bit later. So um, Ryan uh, told me that it wouldn't be appropriate to show my stop motion Lego video today, but I do encourage anyone who um, has um, some interest. um, If you go to the financial access initiatives, YouTube channel, you'll see that there's a stop motion Lego video called when is income, not income um, that uh, covers these basic points. But, you know, before we get into sort of thinking about migration as a household finance tool, we, of course, have to think through what is it that migration is doing? Is the income that a migrant receives qualitatively and quantitatively different from other kinds of income? So let's think about income in various modes. So, of course, in home production, uh, prehistory, uh, pre-industrial revolution, there's no question that the income earned from home production is income. If you're, you're doing the work in the house, it belongs to the household. But you know once we start industrializing in any sort of way, the production moves outside of the house, and then employee um, become a, a, a household member becomes an employee working for someone else so now the income that they're earning is not being earned under the roof that they live in but we've never had any question that that income is just income, and we shouldn't think of it differently from the income from home production it's producing something of value and, and taking extracting that value um, and then um uh, sharing that. Now let's think about an employee in a multinational firm with a client in another country. So again, our intuition wouldn't be that, uh, for instance, if Ryan was actually paying me for this, that um, somehow the earnings that come from Australia, while I'm in that in this case sitting in my home doing this, it, we wouldn't think of that as being a different sort of income, important in a different way. Uh, than other sorts of income, just because the payer of that income is in another country. And in fact, if I was to travel to Australia to give this talk and Ryan paid me, again, no one would think that there was an important reason to segregate Ryan's payment as materially different from any other income that I earned. And if we push that even a bit further, if I relocated to Australia for a month, and I, I'm actually proud to say that I've done this actually before uh, in my career. Um, During the Sydney Olympics, I actually got to attend the Sydney Olympics because uh, most of the employees of the firm I was working for at the time fled Sydney uh, to take advantage of the very low airfares to go anywhere else during the Olympics. Uh, And my firm paid me to relocate to Sydney and cover for them. And as a consequence, I got to go to a bunch of the Sydney Olympics. But again, I was earning that income in Australia, but no one thought of it as a materially different. But we do this weird thing when it comes to remittances, that if a person crosses a border from a rural to an urban area, if a person crosses a border from country to country, the income that they're earning suddenly uh, conceptually has become some other form. And it's very clear when you talk to households that they don't consider that their household is broken into two separate households when someone migrates that that person is still a part of their household and that the money that they're earning is part of the overall household finance picture. It is a tool that they believe will help them better manage liquidity, that will help them better manage investment, that will help them better manage risk. And the fundamental problem with so much of the conversation about remittances is this idea that it's somehow not income, that it's some other category of funds And therefore, we should ask questions that are quite different than we would ask about income. So let me give you an example. One of the core questions that always comes up in remittance research is, do households invest remittances? But you almost never hear anybody ask, do households invest income? It's not really a question that we think about other than externally, are there profitable investment opportunities? So we wouldn't ask if a household is investing income unless we knew there was great evidence that there were profitable investments the household was not making. And even still, our, I think our, for most of us, our natural inclination would be to say, well, there's some part of this that we don't understand. The household is optimizing. The returns on that investment must not be as high as we think they are. Or there's some other constraint that's preventing from taking advantage of this. But when we come to remittances, we often ask that, those questions almost in reverse, and assume the household is doing something wrong if they're not investing, rather than saying, if there was a profitable investment opportunity, the household would invest in it. And so if they're not investing remittances, because remittances are like other income, then we need to look for the source of the problem of a lack of investment opportunities, not for a problem in remittances. Another question we often ask, of would ask is, do households become dependent on remittances? And that, frankly, is just, it's crazy. If you reconceive that question and say, do households become dependent on income? And of course they become dependent on income. That's the whole point of income. If, if we enable a household to make choices that allows them to enjoy more leisure, we don't consider that a problem of work. We don't try and lower wages of workers so that they have to spend all of their time working and not having enjoying themselves. In fact, we try to do the exact opposite. But again, when it comes to remittances, you know, so much of the literature is flavored by this fear that people will actually enjoy themselves and uh, raise their own utility if they have remittances. So we've got to make sure that, that they don't do that. It's a crazy way of thinking about it So what are some better questions that we could be asking? If we think of remittances as income, of course, the biggest question is, how do we get them to remit more? How do we get people to earn more income? How can we help them earn more income? What are the ways we can limit the taxes, uh, implicit and explicit, that that poor households pay so that they can consume more from their income, that they have more available to invest? So rather than worrying about what households who receive remittances do with it, whether they do something productive with it, we should be asking, why aren't remittances larger and what can we do to increase the amount of remittances? Another really backwards question that I've seen in the literature a lot is this question of do remittances help people, uh, 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 do do they drive financial inclusion? Um, Do remittances increase the likelihood that someone has a bank account, that someone engages in formal financial services? And... You again, if we think of this as, does income increase financial inclusion? We would naturally generally expect that income would increase some financial inclusion. The more income you have, the more likely you are to seek uh, financial services. But I really think we should reconceive uh, uh, of how the, the judgment on financial services infrastructure that remittances provide. And so rather than asking why don't remittances cause people to join the formal financial system. We should be asking, how terrible is the formal financial system that remittances aren't enough to convince people that they should be using them? The fact that households that receive remittances don't do it through formal channels, we should believe as the ultimate indictment of those formal channels. We should be thinking of the the incredibly badly uh, run and poor service those channels are providing, rather than blaming the remittance senders of the remittance receivers for not using formal channels, we should be pointing the finger at those channels and saying, how terrible are you that you can't capture these remittances? And therefore, we should be thinking about how do we invest in the formal financial system so that it is actually able to facilitate and capture remittances and drive financial sector deepening and financial inclusion. A question that I wanna to return to here to, to, to as we open up to, to more discussion, is of course, uh, we do still have a lot of questions about the true costs and risks of migration. There's a number of studies that have been arguing about this over the last few years, very well done studies that often come to different conclusions about what the returns the migration are. How costly is it for a household? And I like some of these studies when they start from the perspective of why don't more people migrate? And I'm sure many of you are familiar with uh, the no lean season program in, in Mishik Mubarak's work in Bangladesh to enable rural to urban migration during the lean season. Um, some of you may uh, be familiar with a, a paper by Invert and Pat uh, on the costs for uh, Indian rural to urban migration. And the reason that many Indians don't migrate is uh, because the the cost of living in an urban area when you are um, only peripherally attached to the society are, are higher than we might assume. Um, the cost of rough living, Uh, the costs of making connections and getting a job and the volatility of those jobs. There's another recent paper um, uh, by Ted Miguel and co-authors looking at rural to urban migration and trying to understand how much of the returns are a selection effect uh, and being driven by who migrates rather than by uh, the migration itself. Uh, And more recent work that's reconsidering some of that. Uh, There was an NBER paper a couple of weeks ago that's reconsidering that and, uh, and finding high returns to migration. But we still have a lot of questions there. And if we think about uh, remittances as income, and then we start thinking about the barriers to households earning that income, then we can start thinking a little bit more closely as what are the true costs and the risks of making that investment? And ultimately, from a policy perspective, how do we reduce or mitigate those costs and risks? And of course, the ultimate question is how can more families invest in migration? And so. You know, I I do want to take a moment here just to tell a personal story that um, when my grandmother uh, died a few years ago, she had always regaled us with these stories about uh, old family letters that she had, but none of us had ever seen them. And we finally found them after she died, cleaning out her house, a tobacco tin. This is my great, great, I believe, great grandfather's tobacco tin in which she kept these family letters. And in that tobacco tin, I've got them archived a little bit better than in that tobacco tin now, um, were letters going back to the 1860s. And those letters from the 1860s were about the Kirk family uh, and the five Kirk brothers who were pipe makers in Manchester, England, and um, the struggles that they had during a global depression. And so the first three or four or five letters are letters of rejection that pipe makers, uh, the industry, had sent to my great-great-grandfather and his brothers um, saying, thank you for sending examples of your work. We don't have any work for you. And then the next letter is, uh, essentially, as you piece these letters together, the brothers decided to split up. And one migrated to Edinburgh from Manchester, and one went to Sydney, and one went to New York, and one went to London. And I am the product of that brother who went to New York. Uh, I have no idea, if any of you know the family of Kirks in Australia, please do let me know. They may be related to me. But this idea that they were able to spread their risk so that they could better manage liquidity, they could better manage investment, they could better manage their risk by spreading out across the globe and finding new work um, is incredibly inspiring to me as I think about this. And this question of how do we enable more families to be able to use this incredible tool, this investment Whose returns are so much higher than anything other available to them to improve their lives uh, and reduce poverty. So there are some additional better questions. Uh, this is just a screenshot from the paper it- itself. Uh, I'd encourage everybody to read it. I'm not going to go over this. Uh, we can return to this, but um, the, uh, just the sampling of better questions. Uh, but before we head into more of a just you know, a generalized discussion and open the floor, to me, there, you know, there is this incredible situation happening right now is uh, you know this is um, a chart that shows how much uh, remittances are globally, but we um, there are various predictions that global remittances are going to fall 20%, some of them even more dire than that. Because we have seen, because of the pandemic, a great reverse migration. And it's happening across the globe as people leave high-income countries because work is dried up, as remittances from those countries dry up, e- even if the migrant is not leaving, as people return from urban areas um, to uh, rural areas. Uh, some of the work that we uh, at FAI have been doing, um, my colleague Jonathan Mordock uh, and others have been tracking how uh, reverse migration is um, predictive of the spread of COVID. But along the way, finding uh, there's suggestive evidence that you know, multiple millions of people left every major urban area in the developing world sometime during the course of late February and early March. And... We do have this opportunity, both research-wise and policy-wise, to think about this great reverse migration and what it means and what new opportunities it offers us. One, I think there's an incredible opportunity for new research here to better understand what's happening uh, with these migrants when they go home and how families are adjusting, but also how we might enable re-migration as we bring the pandemic under control. So I, I referenced the no-lean-season work before. Uh, again, some of you may know that um, when that program was scaled up, the returns were, didn't match the initial evaluation and some real questions there about why not. Uh, but again, my colleague Jonathan Morduk uh, also um, did some work in Bangladesh with uh, you know, people who had already migrated to urban areas and facilitating mobile money transfers so that the, the uh, employees in Um, in DACA could more easily and cheaply send money home. And we find pretty substantial effects on consumption in the home village and reduction in poverty and volatility uh, in the home village. So we have a whole bunch of opportunities potentially to policy-wise improve the quality of migration and give people better tools to migrate and remit uh, and share their income across their households even if they are not co-resident under the same roof. Um, And I'm, I'm pretty excited about that possibility and I hope a lot of governments and a lot of other researchers are thinking about um, how we deal with the reverse migration and how we um, enable remigration uh, in the coming months. With that, I'm going to wrap up my remarks. Ryan, how'd I do?
1: Absolutely perfect. Thank you so much. That was, yeah, that was really, really, really interesting. And you added in a lot of other tidbits that I didn't quite expect. Um, so the way we, I think we'll run the group discussion, I, I don't, I'm not a discussant per se. I don't have particular reflections to make on Tim's paper, other than suggesting that you should both watch the Brickman videos and read the paper. Um, but to manage the discussion, you'll see that there's a raise hand button in the participants. For those of you who are not particularly familiar with Zoom, because it's a webinar, we manage it by then allowing clicking the allow you to talk button and allowing you to do that. So. As we go to you for questions, please do also introduce yourself so we know who's in the talk and so perhaps Tim can tailor his responses accordingly.
3: So uh, Richard, over to you, Richard. Timothy, thank you very much for your presentation. I read your paper uh, beforehand and found that it offered genuine new insights into work that uh, I've been doing over many, many years. One particular issue that's come up uh, in the Pacific is the problem of workers allowing their subsistence food production to uh, decline uh, in favor of uh, buying imported food is th- that that uh, is a- an issue that appears to identify a, a use of, of remittances that may, uh, in fact, um, harm the household's uh, long-term food security. Do you have any comment on that?
2: So I think in all of these cases, um, we have to uh, start from a presumption that the household is optimizing their own choices for their own utility. and if we start from a perspective of uh, households should be able to spend the money that they earn in the ways that maximize their utility, then we need to have a very high bar to believe that they are doing something that is um, quite harmful to them. Now, that bar isn't insurmountable. We regulate tobacco. We regulate alcohol because there are things that people uh, spend money on that are harmful enough to them that we think they're actually making suboptimal decisions. However... Uh, you know, when it comes to food, it, it's quite difficult for me to think uh, uh, that, of a, a scenario where I what it would take to convince me that a household is harming their long-term um, consumption um, by choosing um, to buy food elsewhere. What that tells me is the household would rather not actually be responsible for producing their own food. Just like you know, I I have a garden out back, and um, I'm very glad that I am not dependent on. Uh, my my uh, consumption of food is not dependent on how well I do growing um, uh, fruit and veg in my backyard. Um, and so I, I think we should expect that from households is when they gain enough income to not have to be responsible for their own uh, food consumption, that they don't want to do that. Uh, that's the, you know, the pattern of history. And so um, where I think we can think about that is um, what are the mechanisms that allow households to better build up a, alternative um, uh, liquidity management strategies so that if there is a shock to the remittances, if there is a shock to local food production, that they do have some capability of surviving that. And I think we need to think of it within that overall framework of what overall are the tools that are available to households to manage um, consumption or spending shocks. Great. So next we have
1: Matt. I'm guessing that's Matt Dorner, um allowing you to talk, Matt, now.
4: Thanks very much, Ryan. Yes, it is Matt Dornan, um, <laughs> and, and thank you, Timothy. It's a fascinating presentation. I, I guess I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, you, you, your, your paper or your presentation is frames, you know, frames the household as, as the 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 unit or, or the household maximizes its utility. And, you know, I understand the rationale for, for conceptualising it that way, but I wonder if, um, you know, migration is often a, a very long-term phenomenon, as your story, of course, tells, mm-hmm. um, and over time households break up. So at what what point do you, do you challenge that, that narrative and, and do you start to need to look at, um, you know, separation of households or, or, or start to think about, need to think about the individual maximising their utility and, and if not completely forgetting, but gradually, um, I guess, identifying with, with the origin household more. Um, and I guess for, for the Pacific, this has um, been um, subject of some discussion because you, you have such a large um, Polynesian population in particular in, in New Zealand, um, somewhat in Australia as well. Um, mm-hmm. And they've been there now for generations, so the the idea that they will forever be sending back remittances home is obviously not going to, to occur. So um, yeah, we'd be interested to get your views.
2: And Matt, I would love it if this is where our, the, the research conversation went, is a better understanding of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, in a cozy sense, what are the boundaries of the household? Uh, and so when we start talking about these questions, I start thinking about the intro household bargaining literature. And what we know is that husbands and wives in households that we would no, nobody would argue is a household are not perfectly insuring each other are making sort of individual maximizing as well as household utility maximizing uh, decisions. Um, they are don't fully insure each other. They don't fully inform each other. They hide things from each other. And, uh, you know, it, it, with that frame that even the existing household, you know, under the same roof are not, you know, fully an integrated unit, I think is where we start from thinking about uh, just because someone has moved and is, you know, sleeping, even for years in another place, uh, doesn't necess- shouldn't necessarily cause us to think of them as a separate household. The, you know, the barriers of the interactions um, are, are the same uh, or, or, or are, at, are qualitatively the same. They may quantitatively different because of, of information and asymmetries. So uh, you know, there is some work, for instance, by Dean Young uh, that looks at uh, when you reduce information asymmetries between migrants and households, uh, people remit more. So when we come back to that question of like, why don't people remit more? One of them is this intra-household bargaining question. Uh, And when we give people better tools uh, to deal with that, then they do seem to to send more money and and do think of this as a question of, uh, how much can I trust my counterparty um, in the same way that they do inside households? So um, to your point about like multi-generations, I mean, I think that's an excellent point. We don't have a firm conceptual way of saying, where does the household stop? I, I, I'm going to use this as a platform to uh, just quickly mention one of my other big frustrations in this space which is we don't actually have a firm theoretical grounding for calling savings savings you know what, what is savings how long does someone have to save it for it to be savings uh, but you know in the same way we need a better um, theoretical and conceptual model of the boundaries of the household to be able to think through these questions of when does someone actually leave the household and how much in uh, inter and intra-household bargaining there is and what tools can we uh, provide that allow uh, within households and across households a uh, better optimization of the resources.
1: Great. Uh, next up we have Stephen.
4: Uh, hi. Well, Tim, thank you for that very interesting presentation and I'd like your very sort of micro and household-oriented uh, basis or focus. Uh, I'm sure you're aware there's a sort of macro-literature on remittances uh, that talks about the remittance trap. I think it was a paper from the IMF a few years ago that purported to show countries that had a high level of remittances uh, grew more slowly. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that macro literature. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
2: Yeah, thanks for the question, Stephen. My take on that literature is, uh, it it was an example of the asking the question in reverse, which is, the reason you have more remittances in countries is because there is slow growth. And so there are very little opportunities for households um, to generate returns in the country. Um, and so they are directing more of their resources to migration where there are much higher returns and, and sending remittances back. Um, you know, one of the, the these uh, questions that comes out of that, you know, it, are, um, are, remittances invested? And that if you look uh, a little uh for, for those papers um, that, that provide this level of detail, if you look at it in detail, one of the things that they don't consider is that uh, additional migration is an investment. Uh, so if we think of migration as an investment in the first place, of course, additional migration is investment. And what we see in many, many households where there is a, a, a migrant is the next thing that happens is not investing in the, in the village, in the place where the person is. The next investment is sending someone else to migrate too. And again, that makes sense because that's the highest return on the capital that they have. Um, it's only often for, for families once many of the, you know, either there isn't another person to migrate who can successfully migrate or uh, all of the people, um, you know, they've generated enough income uh, from the existing migration to meet their other sort of desires to build a house, to, to invest in schooling and things like that. And so you know, my general take on the literature uh, is um, we are seeing reverse causation. Uh, it is not remittances that are, that are causing countries to grow slowly. It's the slow growth that's causing people to migrate and send remittances.
1: Great. Uh, Firman, uh, you're next up on my list. Uh, yes, uh, I'm Firman Mitular. I'm a fellow at, the, at
5: uh, ANU. Uh, well, I agree with you, Ryan. This is one of the my, now, now my new favorite paper on migration. Uh, I'm Thank particularly you. intrigued with the... Your statement that the, the fact that migrants have not been uh, using modern financial uh, services is an indictment of the how bad the the financial the modern financial surface services are. And I think I see the similar framing in terms of um, uh, social uh, trying to channel social assistance to uh, to increase financial inclusion as a uh, as one way to increase uh, financial inclusion. It's all is now often said that uh why, why don't the 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 poor uh, uh you know access social assistance through increased financial uh, inclusion where I, I think the same uh can be said about it, it, like you said the indictment of this uh, this bad product is being offered but it seems that if you think from the bank bank uh banking industry or the the financial industry it seems like maybe from their perspective, there's not enough payoff to develop uh, the better product. It it seems to be like a market failure there. So what what do you have to, do you have any
2: uh, sense on that? Yeah, so it's a a very good question. um, We do have to think carefully about um, learning issues. So one of the reasons that people don't participate in the formal financial system is um, that they don't really necessarily understand how to use it, don't have experience with it. Mm. So, this uh, work by Jonathan Mordek and, and, and colleagues that I referenced earlier um, on rural to urban migration in Bangladesh, uh, the intervention was training uh, both the recipient and the migrant on how to use mobile money so that uh, they could switch from traditional remittance methods, which uh, usually involved the very high cost of. Uh, paying in cash to hand an envelope to someone on a bus to ride home to the the home village. And so, you know, mobile money is a great innovation for doing that. And it seems generally clear that that's going to be better for people. We should, I think we can sort of assume that it would be better for people than alternatives. But, you know, people who don't have experience in that system needed to be taught um, to use that system to really understand how it worked and how much better it was. And and when they were, they do start intensively using the system. um, And then, we do see significant uh, positive impact from the use of the system and the amount of money that's sent, uh, and then the outcomes in the home village. So, uh, you know, similarly with government programs, you know, I, I, I think it's wrong-headed to design a government program to drive inclusion. Uh, but if you are um, running a government program for social support, and along the way you can give more people more experience with the formal financial system so that they are more capable of making the choice to use it if it is the best tool that's available for them. I think that's, that's all to the good. Um, now, uh, I then have to caveat that that's all to the good. One of the concerns I have in this domain, uh, and I have a webinar coming up in a few weeks that if you subscribe to The Five, you'll hear all about, about digital financial services. Um, and you know the questions that I think aren't being asked there is one of the concerns that I have Uh, in the rush, uh, uh, COVID-driven rush to try to digitize a lot more payments, uh, is that the people who have not adopted some of these systems, uh, whether it's digital mobile money systems or just general formal financial services, um, are the most vulnerable, least experienced, often not necessarily fully literate, often not necessarily fully numerate. And when we bring them into the system, whether it's digital financial services or formal financial service, um, and don't have adequate consumer protections, I think we do need to be concerned about that. Um, it, I, I don't want to call out anything in particular because I haven't seen anything particularly bad out there, but I, I really do worry. What do we expect is going to happen to the least advantaged members of the population if we suddenly dump them into digital services or formal financial services with very little consumer protections? Uh, and I think we do need to be concerned about that. Um, Ryan, before you move on, I do want to come back to um UNA? sued who asked a version of yeah. the uh remittance dependence which i think actually is a little bit different i think i see in the chat he said it was basically the same question but i think there is uh, there is this other uh uh problem that i do think we need to take very seriously the dutch disease version of remittance dependence and i think we need to take that seriously in the same way that we take dutch disease seriously which is um it's uh when a country is experiencing such slow growth that there are so few investment opportunities that they, uh, have many, many people migrate. And, um, those, uh, remittances are being channeled into consumption and additional migration because that's the only investment that's available because the slow growth country, you can get this sort of self-repeating cycle, um, of appreciation of the currency that makes it harder to, to, um, to invest. And I think we do need to take that problem seriously. I don't think we, um, uh, you know, in the the case case of, say, oil dependence, like nobody seriously considers that the solution to oil dependence in, say, Nigeria is to seize all of Nigeria's oil so that Nigeria won't be dependent on oil anymore. In the same way, we shouldn't take that that problem by saying, oh, the problem is remittances are creating this Dutch disease, so we should physically uh, and coercively stop people from migrating and taking advantage of the best investment possible to them. We should imprison them in their country so that they don't become dependent on this. Uh, you know, we, we would consider it laughable uh, if someone proposed that the solution to Dutch disease in resource-intensive countries was to seize their resources and prevent them from selling them in global markets. And we should react the same way to policy solutions that say we should fix remittance Dutch disease by uh, incarcerating people in their country and preventing them uh, from making free choices about the best investments possible to them. But that doesn't mean we don't need to take that question seriously and look at what are the policy options to improve investment opportunities in these countries so that people have better choices available to them without migrating? Um, one of the things I haven't uh, hinted at here is, uh, as I read the literature, you know, most people who migrate don't really want to migrate. <laughs> if they had the opportunities available to them where they were, they would take them. Uh, you know, that's not true of everybody, of course. There are some of us who are predisposed to want to go all over the world and move to a different continent and all those sorts of things. But that's not just, that's not the majority of people. Migrants migrate because there are much higher returns to migration than the opportunities that are available to them where they are. If we want to do something um, to to limit migration, we need to start with how do we increase the returns to investment in the local communities, not... um, uh, not physically and, and coercively restrict opportunities for
1: people. Yeah, really good points. Um, while we, because you mentioned SUS in the Q and A, um, there's another question in the Q and A which I'm not sure if we've covered yet, which we might want to go to. It's mentioning that labor migration, specifically diversifying income source, requires some capital to make the move. In this way, it faces some similar challenges to microfinance. I'm going to be curious to hear your thoughts on and if we should address this limited access to migration and how? I thought, given your background, this is a question you might have thoughts on.
2: Indeed. And um, uh, if you've listened to the talk thus far, uh, you will not be surprised at all to say, to hear that I have spent a long time arguing that we should be making microfinance loans for migration um, and looking at ways to do that. Uh, I'm actually, um, you know, one of the I don't know if I would call it an achievement, but, you know, one thing that I'm most proud of is um, uh, I uh, worked with some, some folks in the Bitcoin community to start a program to use uh, Bitcoin to fund migration of Venezuelans um, out of the country uh, to, to make it easier for them to leave the country and be able to support their relatives back at home. So, um, I, you know, I, I can't offer a more full-throated endorsement. Uh, I'll point out uh, at the European Microfinance Platform Conference this past fall, uh, there was actually a a discussion of this point exactly. And um, again, I was on the side arguing that absolutely we should be making more migration loans. Um, The Philippines, I believe, is the only country right now uh, that is actively providing capital to enable migration um, to to, uh, people in the Philippines to, to migrate overseas for work. Um, I, I think there are some programs nascent in, in, in other places. But, you know, of course, the big question that we have with these programs is the, um, the moral hazard and asymmetric information problem that limits credit markets overall is how do we ensure repayment of migration loans? Um, and that's a, that's a tough problem to solve. But I do think it is a solvable problem. And I really wish uh, a lot more people were paying attention um, to figuring out ways to, to solve that challenge. We know that people will invest a lot of money. They save up for years to be able to pay um, bad operators to help them move across borders. If we could um, uh, facilitate that and provide safer migration channels, I think that would be all to the good.
1: Excellent. Um, there's a follow-up question on Dutch disease. I'm not sure if we want to cover um, To set up a sovereign wealth fund for remittances income, which would require an explicit taxation and lower returns. hmm yeah, I have thoughts on that, but I'm sure you might. I'll see what you say first.
2: Uh, well, I'm very interested in your thoughts, too. So um, uh, please don't, don't limit them in any way. Well, to say. I think this is a really interesting idea. I think one of the questions that we do need to think about uh, when it comes to remittances is optimal taxation and subsidy. And I can see a regime where the migration investment is subsidized and the returns are taxed. Um, that is, you know, that's a classic policy response. Um, and I wouldn't be opposed to it necessarily. It would limit the returns to migration, but if, um, if we are subsidizing uh, the migration in the first place, then uh, I think y- there's a fully justified policy option in taxing some of those returns um, in order to spread the benefits um, uh, more broadly. So um, I, I would be very interested in that policy experiment um, and would cert- certainly support it as a policy experiment, particularly if it was paired with uh, support for migration in the first place, um, i i i would struggle with it a bit more on the taxation of this incredible sacrifice that a family has made to get themselves uh to you know to break through all of the barriers to migrate and then taxing um their uh their success at that uh, but if we were lowering barriers and subsidizing then i would absolutely support taxation of some of the returns
1: yeah no all i would add um that i think You're right, that the public finance question about where the tax should actually sit in which country under who is is an interesting and important one I actually haven't thought deeply enough about. But the only point I would make on sovereign wealth funds is they're done because it's a nation, like natural resources are undoubtedly something that belongs to the country and to everyone It's supposed to be spread that way. I'm not sure I would necessarily think about remittances and I think about that as very much something that sits with the individual and the household. Um, And so I would be cautious to then, immediately think about that the same way as natural resources, um, yeah, and, and tax it the same way. That, that's, that's- However,
2: un- I would say I've just been making the case very stringently that we should consider remittances income and we don't have a theoretical issue with taxing income or- yeah, income.
1: Exactly, income, but rather than a natural resource that belongs to everyone. Um, it's the same with what way we think about income contingent loans here, that the returns accrue privately, um, therefore it's privately financed, yeah. yeah. I'm
6: gonna to go to Susvita. Sorry uh-huh. it took so long. I just want to make a comment regarding the pacific perspective especially in Tonga uh regarding migration because migration before was only an individual decision so now it becomes a family a family decision so it's more or less like shift to to become um an investment decision so i i, I, I agree with the paper and also with uh, with the Presentation that in immigration is starting to be viewed as an uh, investment phenomenon here in Tonga, since it, the, the the whole family participate in making the decision whether the the migrant will migrate or not, and all the uh, and the other comment I uh, I'd like to make is the fact that. Uh, the, the the money received from remittance not really invested in in productive um, activities, and I think the one factor uh, that is the the, the labor market um, market size local market size, since the local market here in the Pacific is so small, and people perceive that they are not. Uh, much opportunities exist there to make profits from whatever activities they are thinking of. So that uh, small size um, is a major contributor to the fact that they are not investing in in investment uh, Mm -hmm. uh, projects, but just uh, spend their money on consumption. And I think that's why the marginal propensity to consume is so high in the Pacific, and I observed that here in Tonga. Is the fact that they uh, they rather spend it on consumptions rather than spending on investments, in which they do not really see any profits uh, gaining due to the to the market size. Um,
2: yeah, that's the comment. Oh, uh, thank you for that. And and I think it is, it is right. I think the Pacific is far ahead of the rest of the world in uh, thinking about migration. Um, I'm sure. Uh, Many of you wish it was further ahead than it was, but it certainly, uh, from what I see emerging sort of policy-wise and thinking-wise from the Pacific region, uh, is vastly farther ahead than a lot of what I see uh, in North America, Um, and and, and thinking about this and conceiving of it. You know, one of the things that, um, you, one of the big drivers of migration in North America is is violence. Um, People fleeing uh, very violent societies in Central America. Uh, And I see a lot of people viewing this uh, um, as irresponsible parents who are bringing their children on this dangerous journey. And I am baffled at the assumption that these parents don't love their children every bit as much as any parent anywhere. And if they are willing to risk that journey for their children, how bad must things be? What What would it take for any of us to consider um, exposing our children to those risks. And the only thing that could drive us to exposing our children to those risks is the risks of not migrating are higher. Um, and if we start from that perspective, and I, you know, I think filtering this down to what you were saying, is um, I, I do, there is very high marginal propensity to consume of remittances because remittances are income, and the marginal propensity to consume of income is high. Um, and if people don't perceive that there are high returns Um, to not consuming, to building up a lump sum and investing, uh, then we shouldn't expect them to do anything other than consume um, or invest in additional migration so that they can um, uh, drive future consumption. Um, So that is, you know, the policy uh, question is what are the investment opportunities that are available to people? Um, How can we Um, as uh, from a policy framework, make sure that people have the access to the most possible positive investment opportunities so that they can make their own choices and they can uh, manage liquidity, manage investment and manage risk in the ways that they themselves choose to do.
1: That's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, um, Sione. So Sione's from the International Organization for Migration in Tonga, as you might've said. Um, Yeah, so we're we're at time, Um, please, me in thanking Tim for, join, for joining us. That was an excellent talk. Um, and we really, really appreciate you staying up and dialing in from your home in Pennsylvania at this hour of, of the night.
2: Well, I, I appreciate your, your hospitality.
1: All <laughs> no right. Take it, take it easy. Um, and thank you every, again, everyone for dialing in and joining us.
0: You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. To find out more about Dev Policy and our work on Australian aid, PNG in the Pacific and global development policy, visit our website, devpolicy.anu.edu.au, or check out our blog at devpolicy.org, where you can subscribe to our daily posts, various newsletters and this podcast. You can also connect with us on social media. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can support us at devpolicy.org forward slash donate. Thanks for listening.